You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks for having us. So um, you've learned a little bit about who Heritage Foods is and who the Heritage Radio Network is. Um, We are going to do our show, The Main Course OG. Um, This is sort of like a live to tape. It will be up um, as soon as we're back. And Sarah is going to be sure to share the link with everybody so that you can uh, listen again, share it. Um, It will listen in your car, on the road, and take a little bit of us with you. And then we actually hope you'd become a regular subscriber to either our show or any of the shows on the network, if you like what you hear. So we have five panelists who are going to be part of our show. Um, I see two of our chefs here. We have Greg Collier and Stephen Goff, if you guys can come up. We also have Donna Moore, Sam Suchoff, and Jeremiah Jones. So we, uh, we like to equate our show a little bit to like The View, if you guys have ever seen it. Patrick likes to call himself Joy Behar. And um, so we, we always do an outline the day before the show. We share it with our panelists. We want them to feel like they're just organized enough and just off the cuff enough um, that we keep it fun and light and fast. Um, so we do have uh, some questions specifically geared towards each person, but we're going to... We're going to start off. Emily oh. goes between the McCain lady and Whoopi Goldberg. So <laughs> just be prepared. You never know what she's going to say. Cody, are we good with all the mics? Cool. Okay. So um, good morning. My name is Emily Pearson, and I'm going to be your host for the next 45 minutes or so. Um, As you may have heard by now, this is a live recording of the Main Course OG, which broadcasts via Heritage Radio Network, normally from the back of Roberta's Pizza in Brooklyn, New York. As Katie mentioned, we're a nonprofit radio station devoted to real issues and stories and food, uh, and we're just one of almost 35 shows. So, my co-host needs no introduction after his keynote address, Patrick. Thank you. Fantastic work. Thank you. They all stayed awake. Can we give him another round of applause? I hope that was the best keynote this morning. That was my goal, to be the single best keynote of the morning. All right. Enough about us. We are honored to be with everyone today here in Charlotte at the Carolina Meat Conference. Thank you all for having us. Uh, We are going to jump into our segment called The Weekly Based. So we typically open our show with the fast-paced round robin to get everyone introduced and warmed up. We're going to start with a game of word association. Uh, For each of our guests here, we selected two words or terms for each of you, and we hope you'll respond in, you know, 15 seconds or less. Uh, just to keep it cool and moving. So, first up, Sam Suchoff, owner of Lady Edison, an award-winning Chapel Hill, North Carolina barbecue restaurant, The Pig. Sam, your word is twang or funk. Um, old ham. Is that, that good? Sure. Yeah. 
explanation or can I just throw it yes, out there? Yes, yes. Like Go for it. Um, uh, so I do country hams with a fellow named Rufus Brown and Bill and Jim Goodnight, and they have been generous enough to leave space and time to hang um, my hams extra long. And, and the longer you hang them, the more they break down and get this really amazing funk or twang. And uh, it's this amazing flavor, this uh, kind of, you know, when something starts to break down, uh, you get this funk that sometimes can be a turnoff, but when it's the right level, it's, it's just kind of uh, exciting, exciting to eat, kind of eating on the edge of the, you know, this, this is almost spoiled, but it's at its perfect point right now. Like fruit, like, you know, like if you get, like go to the farmer's market ever and, and strawberries are at the peak of season, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll be walking through the farmer's market and it smells so good, smells so good, and then at a certain point I'm like, kind of smells like rotten fruit. It's like that, that moment right before it's rotten is when it's at its peak. And so that funk and twang that, that I really enjoy in the country hams is kind of that. It's like the, the best moment before, before it's gone too far. It's something that pasteurization kills, right? I mean, right. If, you, if you are a natural process, yeah, it stays. How about your follow-up word is vegan. Well, 15 seconds or less, come on. 15 seconds, okay. Secret dark history. Um, 13 years old, I became a vegetarian. I was in Los Angeles. My understanding of farming was basically that, or animal you know, farming was that it was done in factories and pretty disgusting. And I joined you know, Lisa Simpson uh, and stopped eating meat. Uh, later on in college, I became a vegan because why not? Uh, uh, and then once I started working, uh, started working with food, and realized there was another option. Instead of just bowing out, I could take a proactive stance and actually support people who were doing things uh, that could take the place of factory farming. And so the whole vegetarian vegan thing is the flip side of the same coin that is now, you know, has me uh, involved in the death of 32 pigs every week. <laughs> now, I was told by David Newman that Cam Newton was went vegan and then proceeded to get injured all the time and now he's eating meat again and I guess is still injured but whatever <laughs> there's something there all right our next panelist word association we have Jeremiah Jones Jeremiah is the president of the North Carolina Natural Hog Growers Association the state's only wholesale pasture raised hog marketing cooperative Jeremiah what your word is row crop agriculture uh, we grow all our own crops to make our own feed to provide our hogs that's all non-GMO. Uh, to become non-GMO, I had to set up a processing facility to process and roast pressed oil out of soybeans to make bean meal. And I do that for our, most of our group. Cool. And your other word, grassroots. Um, that's why my, the name my wife give our farm. It's because we're going back the way the hogs started to be raised, the old-timey way. Now, you're a grassroots organization. How do you get the word out? How do you promote yourself? Uh, we didn't for a long time. We were word of mouth for the first seven or eight years, and we just started using Facebook. We're not real good at it, and we've just started designing a website. We've just used word of mouth because most of our members, a bunch of our members are in their 70s and 80s, and they thought the Internet was the worst thing ever. So we had to do a real good job in all our business by word of mouth. Do they still say www before giving the internet each time? They don't even have wires to their house. They don't even know they're on the internet. And I showed, I showed one of them, I Googled it, and they had two pages of his name and his town where he's from, and he was mad he was even on the internet. 
Now you get to tell them you were on a podcast, too. Whole new, whole new world. All right, we have Greg Collier, chef owner of The Yoke here in Charlotte and co-creator of Soul Food Sessions, a nonprofit organization dedicated to raising awareness and enhancing opportunities for minority chefs. Greg, we have a very important one for you. The New York breakfast. Bacon, egg, and cheese. Oh, man, bacon, egg, and cheese, man. That's easy. So, um... (laughs) We obviously we got a, a breakfast restaurant, and uh, we've been doing uh, bacon, egg, and cheese for a while. Um, but what I'll say about um, bacon is super dope. Um, <laughs> first of all, like bacon is kind of one of those everybody eats it, everybody makes it. It's all the same. And then the first time I had um, like a heritage breed pork belly. Um, bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich, I then threw it at somebody. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we'll get into the importance about all that later, but uh, that's all I got for bacon, egg, and cheese. Awesome. Your other word is soul. Um, so how, how long we got? 15 uh, seconds? Yeah. <laughs> um, so obviously we do uh, soul food sessions, and that's important. And um, one of the things specifically about soul, um, I think a lot of times soul in the context of food is um, kind of limiting. Um, it's kind of like real specific and, and short-sighted. So um, I like soul, but I, I want people to look at it as you would with uh, music or, um, you know, soulful versus just soul. Because kind of saying like soul food is kind of like, oh, well, I know what that is, but how about soulful food or cooking with soul or, you know what I'm saying, when you do something, having soul in that. I like that soul a little better. Mm-hmm. I like that. You need a new restaurant with that name, Soulful. I like that. Mm-hmm. All right. Ooh, uh, not working. We have some female representation on this panel. Uh, we have Donna Moore, the CEO and president of Piedmont Custom Meats, a USDA-inspected processing facility and custom meat fabricator here in North Carolina. Donna, we have the word sausage. Sausage, that would be what we would consider a value add. So something else that you can do with that pig or any species that we would actually process. So it's a value added product. I thought we were, I felt like we were on a spelling bee where you were going to be like sausage. <laughs> sausage, S-A-U. So how many sausages did you have to make before you were like, this is a, a perfect breakfast sausage for us or perfect kielbasa or whatever? We keep it really simple. We use pre-mixes that, have, that our customers like. And so we have about 12 different flavors that they can use. Do they also get to come to you with a recipe and make their own, like private label? We try not to. <laughs> because <laughs> right, that it. would be that a idea. lot of changing in our HACCP plans and a lot of other things that go along with that. Your other word is bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> U-S-D-A, <laughs> F-S-I-S. Yeah. They're in the industry being a slaughterhouse and, or animal harvester and um, processor. There is a lot of regulations that probably most of our customers on a day-in and day-out basis have no idea that we have to deal with. So it's the government. Do you, does that, is that what keeps a lot of smaller plants out of business or not starting because of how much bureaucracy and paperwork there is? I would say there's a lot to that, yes. Yes. All right. Last but not least on our panel, we have Stephen Goff, executive chef and co-owner of Oxbar, Blind Pig, and Brinehouse Meat and Provisions Food Truck. 
And I think there's one more, right? Am I missing one restaurant? No, no. That, no. That's everything. So your word is parking. That, that's a really hard one. Like I saw that and I'm like, uh, pain in the ass? I don't know. Does your food truck uh, stay parked or is it mobile around the city? It's, it's mobile. We, uh, we always, I, I prefer to have it mobile rather than like, like parked in one spot. I've just found, at least in the cities that we've operated in, that's, that's our better option. And do you like tweet out or, as Patrick said, you twit face, tell the world uh, where yeah, you're going to be? We twit face here and there. Uh, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm not as good as it, at it as I should be for, for the food truck anyway. But <clears throat> All right, your other word is hunger. Uh, hunger, you know, hunger is something that uh, is a very important issue to me. So uh, hunger goes back. It, it just makes me think of, you know, at the restaurant, we we sell a, a wooden nickel so that we that people can like tourists or people that come in can purchase a nickel and give it to a homeless or hungry person, uh, and then they can come in and and it's not just getting a meal. It's not even necessarily dealing with hunger. It's that they can sit down and enjoy a meal in a restaurant like like a regular person. Uh, so, so it's not even just just the hunger that that we do that for. And then you know uh, I lived on the streets for a long time, so I, I just don't like to see people go hungry. That's awesome. Can people like buy a wooden nickel from afar? Like, can we go? Can you call or go online? And uh, I've never had that because, like, you know, our whole thing is that is that. So another thing with the nickel is I wanted people to take the nickel and have to actually oh. talk to somebody. I mean, we do. I know. People, I love that. That's people, cool. You get to actually see where your right you know, where that drive and where your passion's going and see that it's like a that, that's a human being. You know, a lot of people don't see that when they see someone on the streets. Cool. Well, uh, you guys did well. I'm impressed. We are going to keep going with the show. I have a question for a few of you. If our sustainable movement is to succeed, we must build alliances and make friends along the way. So Donna, Stephen, and Greg, what does hospitality mean to each of you? Why are y'all looking at me like I'm supposed to take it first? <laughs> <laughs> But you just threw a bacon, egg, and cheese at someone. I know, so. right? So I got to be more hospitable. Uh, but I threw it at them because it was so good, delicious. It wasn't because I was mad at them. Um, I mean, hospitality for me is, is kind of simple and extremely complex at the same time. Um, I think hospitality should be about service. Um, and that's at every level and every way you could possibly look at service. I think a lot of times in the kitchens, especially as chefs, we kind of feel like we're gods or lords over the food scene and that people are coming to see us. And um, we forget the point of what we're doing is because we love to serve people and we love to feed people. So um, for me, hospitality is just, even when it gets tough, even when a customer or you know, a, a, a relationship is not going the way you really want it to go, is to keep in mind that you're here to serve and improve um, someone's day. You're here to serve and improve the industry. Um, the goal is to make someone happy through the thing that you're doing. So um, I think hospitality, hospi hospitability <laughs> is about keeping that focus and, and, and remembering that you're in the service industry. That does not mean you're a servant at all whatsoever, but it does, however, mean that you're here in the service of other people. So um, please stay off your high horse and remain in the service industry. And for us, Hospitality is customer service because 
at Piedmont, we don't buy anything and we don't sell anything other than a service. So our customers are our bread and butter, so we have to provide excellent customer service so they will continue to come back to us. I mean, at Heritage, we couldn't do what we do 52 weeks a year, 200 pigs a week without our processor that we work with outside Kansas City. You know, Paradise Locker Meats is every bit of the, the triangle, circular, whatever we want to call it, relationship that allows us to function and to be hospitable and to take good care of our customers and whether that be chefs or eaters. So I totally agree. Chef Steven, what about you? Uh, I mean, I go along uh, the same as Greg along those lines of, you know, even, even hospitality should, should not even just be you and your guests, like your, your employees, your associates, your coworkers, when you're at an event with other chefs, be hospitable, like show that welcoming hand, you know, and, and that's part of what our, our restaurant in Asheville is about is like, I, I wanted it to feel hospitable, convivial, happy, you know, and, and that's the only way that talking about building alliances and the sustainable food movement, we have to be hospitable and welcoming and welcome people in and, and not talk down and, and condescend, you know, if we want them to buy what we're selling, basically. Or as Patrick says, talk less, right? Yeah, talk less. The less I talk, the better. When someone like a chef's upset, I'm like, they need someone to be nice. Emily, you take this call. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Jeremiah and Sam, what is your leadership style? Um, gosh, I mean, leadership, you know, makes me think of, you know, someone who has a goal and, and pulls people along with them to reach the goal. And I would, I would say, you know, more than pulling people towards my goal, I try to uh, do collaboration. Um, I feel like, you know, I collaborate with the co-op to get, you know, all the pigs and, and parts and all that stuff out there, sold, turned into something, uh, cooked into barbecue. Um, I, I like finding people who have similar goals and kind of going at that goal together as opposed to, you know, forming a team to all work towards, you know, whatever my goal is. I think it's, uh, you know, a little bit easier. Um, it fits my personality more. I don't really like telling people what to do. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it's hard to keep your stamina up when you're constantly pushing towards a goal. And if you have people around you who share that goal or who have a goal that's similar, you know, their own stamina is, pushes you along when you kind of are, are slow. So, you know, if I'm not having a great week, you know, I can talk to Jeremiah and we can BS back and forth about the, BS back and forth about the hogs and, you know, who's got what and how things are going. And, you know, it pushes me forward. So I, don't consider myself much of a leader, but I do consider myself a, a collaborator. Jeremiah? My leadership style is more forced than survival. <laughs> uh, we lost a contract, but we always raised for one market, and I didn't want to get out of the hog business. So we formed a co-op, and I was the youngest, had a cell phone, and was able to turn on a computer somewhat. So I was picked as the leader. <laughs> and nobody's trying to take it from me. So. Good answer. Well, Alice Waters once told me a story about a bakery in Paris that started, it was very small, and then they totally expanded. But when they expanded, they did not create a baking team with the first person most powerful all the way to the hundredth person least powerful. They created out of a common fire, one 
fire in the center and like rays of the sun, they were 12 independent baking teams. So you were never lower than the sixth person on the totem pole. And they all made the same bread, but with their own maybe charming inconsistency to it. But it was a great way to totally expand without kind of neutering the worker and all that. So I thought it was, that's a great story, an inspirational story of how you can be a huge company while you know, having a lot of independent groups in it. So uh, our next uh, weekly-based topic here, so if you become a regular listener of our show, which I know you all will, absolutely, after today, we always try to sneak in a question, usually about the royal family, but it wasn't resonating so much with this group. So we, uh, we wanted to go a little more local North Carolina. Michael so, Jordan? I, Michael McDonald's? I don't know. Which one? Which uh, one? Game time decision. Ronald McDonald Board of Directors. Okay. So if the Ronald McDonald House's Board of Directors, or excuse me, the McDonald's Board of Directors uh, was here today for the North Carolina Meat Conference, and you were assigned one buffet station, or let's say a single bite to feed them, what would you serve? Um, I mean, I guess I can't not say country ham. <laughs> so country ham, but also... Uh, my, my second favorite dish to serve buffet style is beanie weenies. Home, homemade hot dogs. I'll pour co-op. But. Donna, what do you got for us? How about a grass-fed, local grass-fed beef burger versus that other the thing other. that they serve? Yeah. Yeah. Let's go with grass-fed beef burger. Now, grass-fed beef burger, do you have to add more fat into it to make it tastier? I mean, is grass-fed sometimes not have enough fat in it, or how do people deal with that issue? I think a true grass-fed burger is just, you don't need it. It is just what the trimming is from that particular animal. Nothing else is really needed. Yeah. Chefs? We're expecting to be wowed here. Come on. <laughs> oh, yeah, you go. Right, good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I was going to go with, the, with, with sliders, but then Donna stole it, so. <laughs> you, can it. you can also have sliders, yeah. Uh, maybe a filet of fish you know, because it's the, the unexpected <laughs> hit of, of their menu, you know, so we could make a, an actually, like, local filet of fish with some meat glue and, and such. <laughs> Chef Greg? Uh, I, um, my absolute favorite thing in life to cook are grits um, and we have a recipe so we got a couple recipes for grits one of them is ham bone grits so we take whatever ham bones that we can get from whatever you know pig farmers like y'all just send us some bones and we make a stock with that and we cook our grits in that um, and I would serve that to them because for me like grits are a super super humble and super cheap dish so it's kind of like you could take this really humble cheap thing with those really humble, cheap bones that people are trying to throw away and get rid of and put out a, a, a bowl of something that's delicious and filling that's really, really cheap. So uh, for me, that'll kind of just be like, yo, you ain't got to serve carpet meat, you know what I'm saying, on a burger to, to be cheap. You can actually do something with some sense and with some love, and it can still be cheap and delicious. <laughs> I have every, every walk-around buffet, the best station, the carving station. That's where I go. I fill up my plate with the carving station. I have a huge grass-fed London broil or whatever it is. Prime rib. Prime. Jeremiah, what's your bite or station? Mm, I'd probably give him a big, thick slice of ham, uh, Sam's ham. <laughs> 
we worked a food show together one time and he walked away so I started carving. He said, give me that knife, it's too thick. He just wants people to be able to lick the knife, that's the only flavor they get. <laughs> All right, meet mentors. Is there someone who taught you a lesson that you carry with you every day? This is for all of you. Well, I think, uh, so Sam Edwards was brought up earlier. Um, when I first looked into getting hams cured out, I brought uh, a ham up to, to Surrey, where Sam Edwards uh, had his ham house, and I brought one down to Johnson County with, to Rufus Brown. And that was 10 plus, maybe 12 years ago. And over the 12 years, I've, you know, called Sam and we've talked about hams and what, you know, his situation was, um, you know, he went through some pretty horrible times with the fire and then another fire. Um, and I've gone through my own serious situations where I thought everything was about to crumble. Um, and he's always, always been super open, sharing all of his contacts that like, there's no secrets that he is trying to keep you know, me as a possible competitor from, from knowing. Uh, and he told me once that uh, America imports, you know, X million pounds of hams from Italy and Spain and, and France now, and, and that there's room for tons for all of us, all of these ham makers, old school ham makers, to really make as many hams as they can. Um, and so there's no real need for competition I mean, yet, you know, maybe, maybe at some point, you know, we will flood the market with delicious hams and that won't be a bad day. Um, but just his openness and sharing and yeah, not turning it into a competition because we're all kind of trying to do the same thing, get good food to people and yeah, so sharing information. Who's next? Who are your meat mentors, Chef Greg? Um, so I don't know if y'all, if, if if everybody knows, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, aka uh, barbecue pork capital of the world. Fight me about it. Um, <laughs> um, so one of uh, one of the more known restaurants in Memphis, as far as uh, barbecue, is Corky's Restaurant. Um, I met the pitmaster, like they're one of the original pitmasters there. I don't know when I was like 23. And I was in the, he came to one of the, the hot wing restaurant that I was working at at this time. And I was running back and forth, dropping fries, cooking wings, cooking burgers. He said, son, slow down. And I said, I, I got you, I got you, I got you. So I kept running around, running around. He's like, son, slow down. He was like, listen, you got to take your time. You got to take your time in life and you got to take your time when you're cooking too. Like you really can't accomplish anything by rushing and going fast. So it was, it was, it was more of a, life lesson, and he was talking about pork shoulders and barbecue and ribs and stuff too, but the point was just to take your time and enjoy what you're doing because you really can't put out a good product on the farm, in the kitchen, in the office if you're not taking your time and you're being deliberate about stuff. So that was my meat mentor message. You're all slowing down too much. <laughs> Next, Steven. I, uh, <clears throat> I always, uh, I looked up to Craig not working. <laughs> uh, Craig Deal, who's actually here today, I I, uh, I always looked up to him. He, he's he's always to me been like the king of Southern charcuterie. So like I would watch him from afar in Charleston, and and while I was in Asheville, I got to go down there and stage with him a few times, take a few classes with him. Uh, but just like the simplicity that he approaches meat and charcuterie, like it, 
For me, if you're, if you're using really great pasture-raised meat, you don't need a thousand spices. Salt, pepper, pork, and thyme. You know, those are, those are about, to me, what you need. You know, that, and that's why we use all these farmers here. And, you know, we, we use local meat. We use heritage breed meat because we want the, that flavor. We don't need to manipulate it. Uh, so that's my meat mentor, man. That's awesome. Donna? There is a person from a customer service point of view that I think I've really took away from that they always said, imagine that the person that you're talking to, so this would be our customers, is always wearing a sign that says, make me feel special. Because that person, this is their livelihood, this is their business, their success, is impacted a great deal by what we do for them providing a service. So it's always trying to make them feel special and realizing that this is the business and what they're trying to they're trying to accomplish. Mine would probably be my uncle teaching me the value of hard work and how to push through and get it done, especially being a farmer through harvest season, planting and all that, trying to tend to the hogs and row crop and all that, push through and get it done, especially working around the weather we have nowadays. So. Awesome. How do each of you digest your food information and news? Wait, Jeremiah, we know yours is obviously all forms of social media. Is it print media, the local farmer's market, word of mouth? How do you guys take in, you know? Ours is all knowledge. by word of mouth. We just do the best job we can so we get the best reputation there is and try and raise our pigs to the highest standard. So. Chefs, are you all like food news is all through Instagram? Is it... Still the New York Times or the Charlotte Observer? Um, uh, well, a, a few ways. Um, we both are in uh, the Piedmont Culinary Guild. So one of the things about guilds and groups like that is that, like, when I see chefs, we have conversations. Most times it's about how hard the restaurant industry is and what else is going on in food. Um, so one of the... Word of mouth is probably the biggest way. And then, you know, we're always, I'm always scrolling on Facebook and Instagram or social media, and I hate it. I hate Facebook so much. But then every time I was like, yeah, I'm going to get off Facebook. It's like, you need to get on Facebook to promote this thing that we're doing. So I have to get back on Facebook, and then I get caught in the wormhole again. So, But um, more than anything, I think it's word of mouth, just kind of seeing chefs or farmers or whatever different artisans locally that we kind of meet. And, and I'll see in the grocery store, we'll talk about something. I'll see at the farmer's market, and we'll talk about something more. I'll hit them up on Facebook about something else and we'll start talking about food. So I think uh, word of mouth is still the biggest way. Yeah, I, I guess I'd go with that too. Like, um, I mean, I, I can, I'm just constantly consuming food information. So like, yeah, I, I don't go anywhere without my phone. So social media is huge for me, but at the same time, I'm always, I'm always at events and I'm either talking to the other chefs or farmers or whoever, uh, artisans and, and, or I'm on my phone, like, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? So, yeah, I, I would definitely say social media. Donna, are the meat magazines, like, still a, a stronghold? Kind of, but not so much. I think the most information we probably get is from our customers because they are the pulse at, food, at different events or at farmer's markets or where they're selling through restaurants and what they are looking for or what they're needing. That's the information and feedback we usually can get from well, I think the, the New York Times food section, I mean, obviously I have great respect for the Times, but their food section is a joke. They don't cover any issue. 
And when that new editor said, oh, I'm going to come, I'm going to really change the whole direction, we're going to get all serious, they don't talk about the environment, they don't talk about global warming, they don't talk about commodity pricing, they don't talk about USDA, they don't talk, they will do a, a spotlight on a lady farm cheesemonger from Vermont, and then for five years, they'll be like, we covered the cheese movement. You know, there'll be this big event, they won't cover it. You know, so I think the food sections need to change. I also really dislike the idea of like one old white guy being the restaurant critic for the New York Times for 10 years. I mean, the hell with that guy. I don't want that guy. I would like maybe five people to each contribute each week, a few paragraphs. And then, you know, so each week they do cover one restaurant. So that means 52 restaurants a year get covered in New York out of maybe 3 million restaurants. You know, it's a joke. Those people need to be fired and we need to get like everybody here to run the friggin' food section. All right, for the final part of our show, we call this the Weekly Grill. Uh, we've written one question specific for each of you. Um, Donna, what are the two most important tools in your trade? For us, it's education and customer service. So educating our producers, the people who bring animals to us, for what can be done, suggestions on different ways they might want to cut an animal or process an animal, or just things that may not necessarily know about. Also, connecting ed through education. The guy over here who's got a lot of extra hamburger that he can't get rid of, and the guy over here who is needing a lot of extra hamburger and trying to connect some of our existing customers together. We um, actually meant tools. Tools. Like a knife? slicer, a knife, a wait, cryo yeah. machine. I love I was that she gave a more tools. philosophical answer. I'm thinking soft tools, yeah, real tools, you know. Good answer. So, um, All right, if you had gosh. to pick some sharp tools just for Patrick's sake. Yeah, a knife. No, um, Good cryo machine is important, right? Cryovac. Cryovac machines, I think, is a, or roll stock machines. That's our most favorite tool because I think that kind of gets gives the presentation of the meat that we produce for our customers. And when they're selling it, it has that retail-ready look, not in some brown paper packaging. Nothing wrong with that, necessarily. But it looks, it looks good, the eye buzz. How about that emulsifier? I read you made, make hot dogs. Yeah, a lot of people don't. Yeah, well, we have an emulsifier that makes hot dogs and bologna, so that would be another, that's been another tool, yeah. Right. Sorry, I went philosophical, no, no, I guess. <laughs> there's no wrong way to answer a question on the main course. Okay, good. Jeremiah, what's your best argument for getting more farmers to raise animals humanely? Uh, it's better for the animals, better for the environment, and better taste than meat. But uh, if you ever go in, and just like with the hogs, if you ever see them in a hog house in a crate, gestation crate and see a sow going crazy, I mean, it's just not meant to be. So. Short and sweet, I like that answer. Greg, you are an outspoken person for minorities in the food sector, so we'd love to know, why are so many top kitchen positions filled with white males? So I'll give my half-hearted, I think kind of funny answer. Well, it might not be funny, but. Um, the same reason every industry is ran at the top by white males. It's the status quo and it's how America was built. Um, but I think in the kitchen industry, it's a little different because if you look at the 30s and 40s and 50s, I'll say maybe it started to turn in the 70s when like French chefs started to come over. Black folks used to run the kitchens, run the railroads. It was, you know, black folks were servers, black folks were chefs, black folks were farmers and all those things kind of changed. I think when the industry gets cool, 
specifically when the food industry got cool and there was more financial gain in it, because we're, we're talking about, you know, $10 hamburger days and stuff like that. Um, I think it's easier for a lot of people to digest um, going to a place ran by somebody that looks like them. And the reality is most times we go to these big restaurants, you know, it's filled with white people in the dining room. So um, if you go to a soul food spot, you know, you got a grandma in the kitchen or a black lady in the kitchen or a black guy back there cooking recipes and it's filled with black people. So um, I, I, the, easy, the easy answer is um, I, just, I just think that the hospitality industry and the food industry as a whole has a kind of elitist tone a lot of times when you're talking about the higher end best places and when you're talking about the cheaper um, $5 meal, $10 meal places ran by any minorities, Asian restaurants, uh, Vietnamese restaurants, that food has looked like it's cheap. So it's okay for minorities to run those kitchens and be leaders in those kitchens because it's cheap. Um, so I think it's kind of, a, um, I think once you get to a certain level of food, it's more acceptable for um, white chefs to be running those kitchens because it's finer food, it's higher end food, and it's kind of, um, I think what the status quo in America is that, you know, white people, white, white folks in general, specifically white males, are gonna be running those things. All right. I, I, I love being kind of speechless. That was a good what answer. Do you, what do you do to help? I mean, how do you be an outspoken person for minorities? I mean, are you trying to connect owners to chefs or um, I mean I'll say I'll say it from a from a few different perspectives like right so an interesting anecdote I don't know my friend uh, Chase Reynolds isn't in here but Chase Reynolds with Two Pigs Farm is in Cleveland County um, he was like bro you should come to the farm like Chase is super cool we had those conversations about um, race and just different things he was like bro you should come to the farm you should come to the farm so me and my boy Mike Bowling uh, also a black chef we riding out driving to Cleveland County. We were like, yo, man, we about to hang out with the ducks, man, see the chickens or whatever. We see uh, a small uh, Confederate flag on the side. We both say, huh. And we just keep driving, we driving, we driving. We say like a bigger Confederate flag on the other side. We say like, huh. And we driving, we driving, we driving. You know, we can make a left, make a right. We see the absolute biggest Confederate flag I've ever seen in my life on the top of a house. We say, shit. <laughs> We really in the country now, huh? And, and, the, and the reality is, you know, most folks, you know, like white chefs, that's not even a, they're not really thinking about their Confederate flag and associating it with what I'm associating it with because they don't share the history that I share it with. So for me, I think what I try to do on one side is kind of have the conversations with the farmers, with the folks who might not necessarily be um, in certain neighborhoods in Charlotte and say, hey man, what do y'all think about this? How y'all feel about this? This is what we're thinking about and this is what we're going, and this is what's going on with me specifically as a black chef. Like I can't speak for every black chef. And then when I'm going to talk to black chefs, I'm saying, yo, I know when you drive out to the country, the context in which you see this place is riddled with pain. But if you go out here and meet some of these folks and have those conversations, you may find out that that's one idiot, right? that has that Confederate flag, or 12, or 100, whatever. <laughs> but it's not every single person that's in the country who feels that way. It's not every single person who's in the food industry who feels that way. So for me, it's more about having people sit at the table as equals, like uh, Stephen was saying earlier. We did a community feast. We, we had 200 people in the dinner. We had tickets that sold for 120, tickets that sold for 80, tickets that sold for 20, and we gave away 60 tickets to people in those communities in Charlotte. And not because we felt like it was a handout, it's just because we, 
I feel like it's important for people of different whatever, different nationalities, different races, different mindsets, different views on uh, religion, to sit down at the table and have a conversation and just share something that we can mostly agree on, like food. We lo everybody here loves to eat. If you're a vegan, you still love to eat. It just be grains and vegetables. And if you hate grains and vegetables, you still love to eat. It's just pork of all kinds. So I, f I feel it's very important um, from my perspective to let people know that like, yo, I'm a chef. I'm also black, I can cook my ass off, and I'm also cool with hanging out with farmers. I also listen to rap music, I also listen to classical music. So um, not only just by talking about minorities and just having conversations from my perspective, it's just more about knowing that people aren't a one spot, one room type of, just type of anything. People are all different, people all think different, people all feel different, so if we could sit at the table more and have more conversations like we're having with this panel, like we do on Facebook, in a, in a space that's not who we're voting for president and not what's going on with the police officer, right? we'll never agree on those things, but let's start at a place we can agree on food and see how much we can build from there. Stephen, we read you always say, all ships rise. Tell us what you mean by that. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, as far as we're talking today, you know, we're all here because we're part of the local food movement, you know, and, and a lot of times people get caught up with being competitors, but we're not competitors. Chefs aren't competitors with other chefs. We need to be compatriots. We need to all help each other rise. And certain people, they're like, oh, the, the farm to table movement, oh, it's done, they made it. No, it's not done at all. We've only like touched the tip of the iceberg and we still need to keep you know, helping each other rise up and, and, and informing people, educating people and making sure that <clears throat> we're, you know, we're, we're bringing this to the forefront, not just to food people. And like we were talking about hospitality earlier, you, you wanna, the reason that I make the kind of food that I make as a chef is because I want it to be approachable so that I can take this, this heritage breed hog or, or this, you know, farmer grown food and give it to somebody in a, in a, in a fashion that they understand. And that's like their, their opening door. You know, I, I read about uh, an article with Alice Waters getting mad at uh, this, this lady that was working for her doing the school lunch program in Berkeley, you know, and she's like, why, why are we feeding them meatloaf? We're feeding them meatloaf because it was taken it's as farm raised beef ground and it's something they recognize and that's that first footstep and just like Greg was talking about inviting people from other communities and sitting at the table together that's how all ships rise you know we, we all can sit together and break bread and, and commune Donna's answer is also coming back around to the education and then the hospitality so awesome Sam what would you like to tell all the entrepreneurs thinking about launching into a rarefied specialty food business <clears throat> You sure I can't just talk about sharp tools? <laughs> Maybe a little. Um, I would say um, extend trust. You know, it's really important that you find people uh, who you feel like you can trust and extend it. You know, be, be vulnerable. Uh, we are all, we are dependent on who we work with um, and it's uncomfortable sometimes, uh, but by always, you know, giving your partners the, the benefit of the doubt, um, trusting that they've got, you know, got your back. I mean, occasionally 
they might not have your back. And it's, you know, it's a hard lesson to learn, um, but never, never give up on trusting the people that you work with, I would say. Awesome. So we can't thank you guys enough for joining us today. This has been a really unique, special experience uh, for me and for Patrick and for Katie. It's always really fun to go on the road and to do something live and to have a takeaway. Um, we do hope you'll all come back and actually be in the studio with us in Brooklyn. We'd love to uh, buy you a pizza and have you with headphones on, Jeremiah, with nobody watching you in a little radio booth, as you, promised. You guys all have great faces for the radio. <laughs> So um, this is the main course OG. Find us in all 35 shows at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we hope you will follow us on social media at the main course OG and heritage underscore radio and consider becoming a member. So please visit heritageradionetwork.org and uh, ask us any questions. Thank you to our panel. Thank you. Thank you. The main course OG is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.